Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. For people who have not listened to the last two weeks, starting the last week of April, I really urge you to go back and listen to those sessions. So we've started a new class, which is Intro to Jewish Theology, and uh, that topic abuts and filters into the study of the Sidur. Um, And I said that we're starting out, we're going kind of in historical order. We're starting out with different idea theologies or ideas about God in the Bible, in the Torah and the Tanakh. And the last two weeks, we talked about um, the idea that God can sometimes appear to people as a human. I believe, uh, who was it? Was it Terry, I think, or or Diane? Used the very big word, corpore, I can't even say it. It's too early in the morning. Corporeality, the idea that God can have a body. And now, this week, we're going to go on to a different idea from the Bible. Also, an idea that God can have a physical presence but a different kind of view, and this is what Bible scholars talk about as kavod theology, the idea that God has a physical presence, which is referred to, and again, to to talk about this, we need to strip away our medieval Maimonidean and modern assumptions that, of course, God has no presence, of course, God is everywhere, of course, God is like H2O, you know, tasteless, odorless, colorless, uh, but also even better than H2O, invisible, right, everywhere and nowhere. So we have to strip away those notions to look at texts kind of on the simple face of things. So we're going to look at texts in the Bible that say that God has a presence, and that presence is called a kavod. We'll talk about that word in a moment. Um, It's usually translated in English, most English Bibles as presence or glory, which just kind of avoids understanding what it means. So I'm going to prefer to not translate at the beginning and just say kavod. Um, And that God's kavod is here and not there, meaning God's kavod actually has a place to it, okay? A physical place where God's kavod or presence is. Um, so, and and these uh, these texts, by the way, are associated with what Bible scholars call the part of the document, which is about priest, the part of the Torah, which is about priestly concerns. So secular Bible scholars call this P, you know, in the documentary hypothesis, J-E-P-D. This is the priestly part of the Torah, uh, co- concerns of the Kohanim. And not surprisingly, the Kohanim, well, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to spoil it for you. We'll see where the Kohanim think God's kavod resides physically, and I will tell you in advance that that will not be a huge surprise. Okay, now I'm going to do screen share because I have a text of. Let's try to do this. Okay, uh, everyone, see someone wave your hand if you see it. Okay, good. Okay. And again, this is going to be on um, 
attached to the podcast. So if you actually want to copy, save a copy of it for yourself um, or download it, um, you'll be able to do that later. Usually it goes up later today when Bert puts it up. Thank you, Bert Kleinman. Um, and because it has God's name in it, or letter name of God, I say to people that if you do print it out, please do not throw it out in the garbage. Please uh, uh, put it in recycling if you want to dispose of it. Okay, so let's start with um, the Revelation, giving of the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai, Shemot, chapter eight, Exodus chapter 19, a familiar passage to most people. Uh, get ready for the giving of the Torah, prepare for three days. And on day three, there's thunder and lightning and a dense cloud on the mountain. Okay. And Moses takes the people out of the camp and they stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was all in smoke for God had come down to it, Yarad, to it on fire. So there is, so God comes down and we can say, well, it's all a metaphor. All that is, sorry, that's a, Later assumption, right? But the text seems to say God comes down to the top of the mountain, which means God is somewhere up there. God comes down, and this somehow involves smoke and fire. Okay? And Vayered Hashem al Harsinai al Roshahar, God comes down to the mountain, to the top of the mountain, and calls Moses, and Moses climbs to the top of the mountain. So all the people are standing at the foot of the mountain. God comes down from above, we assume from the heavens, but doesn't say that, comes down from wherever God is beforehand, comes down to be on the top of Mount Sinai. This somehow involves there's smoke and there's fire. And of course, there's shofar blast and the mountain trembling. And Moshe, to meet with God, has to come up to the top of the mountain. God comes down, Moshe comes up. And then we have the Ten Commandments, and then we have Parshat Mishpatim, the laws, and then at the end of Parshat Mishpatim, Exodus 24, this is the second passage, God says, uh, you, Moses, and Aaron, and Adav, and Avihu, and seven of the elders, come closer and worship, but only Moses should come up to be with me, okay? And all these people, Moses, Aaron, Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Abihu, and the 70 elders. I bolded the things. They saw God. Um, and under God's feet was something like a sapphire pavement. It's a platform which is of clear sapphire. And um, this line will not surprise us, those of us who were here the last two weeks. They saw God, but they lived. Okay, so it's uh, the fact that they lived is seen as a remarkable occurrence that they were actually able to see God and live, because we know from elsewhere later in Exodus, as God says to Moses, you can't see me because no one can see me and live. So this is an unusual experience that they saw God and live. Okay, and then God says to Moses, come up here and um, I'm going to give you more laws. Okay, and here's the first place where we see this word. Um so Moses says to the elders, hold on a second, Mike, I'll be with you in a minute. Moses says to the elders, you stay here. I'm going to go up and talk to God. Vaya'al Moshe, M- Moses had ascended the mountain. The cloud covered the mountain. You might ask, by the way, is this, did he go up and then he went down and then he went up? So I'm going to not deal with that question today. 
Um, is this a second account of the same thing? Did Moses go up more than once? We're going to leave that aside. But Moses goes up. The cloud covers the mountain, by which we assume it means kind of the top of the mountain, maybe. Vayishkon kivod Hashem al Har Sinai. The, I'm gonna I I bolded the presence, but I'm just gonna say kavod. God's kavod dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud hid it for six days. It could be it could mean it the mountain, or it could vayichaseu could refer to him. It could mean the cloud covered him for six days, and on the seventh day. God called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And you all, we all, the 70 elders, are down at the bottom. What do we see? Umar A, Kivod Hashem, and the appearance of God's Kavod looked like a consuming fire at the top of the mountain in the eyes of all of Israel. So we're down at the bottom, and God's Kavod is at the top of the mountain. It somehow involves fire and cloud, okay? And Moses goes into the cloud for God to communicate with Moshe. I'm going to pause. Michael H. has a question. You yes. Might... Yeah. The, the question is, uh, does it say in the Torah that God says you cannot see me and live or that you cannot see my face and live? No, he says, Kilo yirani ha'adam v'chai. You cannot see me and live. Okay. I understand that in the passage, he says, I'm going to cover you so you won't see my face, you'll see my back. But the Torah says you can't see me and live. Ah, okay. That In that line. Okay. So God has something called a kavod, which came down to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> I'll, I'm, I'm going to sort of homogenize how this is generally understood. It looks somehow like fire, and it's shrouded in cloud. Okay, and it's not surprising to us and that it's fire, because where did we first read about God as fire before? Burning bush? Right. So God is represented, I don't know, air quotes, in fire or looks like fire somehow. Okay, and the fire is shrouded in cloud. It's a little bit like a protective shield kind of thing the asbestos around the fire, okay? Um, so you look at the top of the mountain, you could see there's a fire there, but it's kind of shrouded in cloud. Um, and Moshe goes into the cloud. Moses went inside the cloud at the top of the mountain, and he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. Okay. And then we have many chapters where God commands Moshe to build the Mishkan, the, the, the portable tabernacle, and Moses builds the Mishkan, and here's what happens after the Mishkan is built. At the end of the book of Shemot, Exodus, the last chapter, that the cloud, remember the cloud? God is present in a cloud. The cloud covered the tent of meeting, which is now seen to be a synonym for the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Uchavod Hashem Maleid HaMishkan. So the cloud somehow moves from the top of Mount Sinai to the newly built tabernacle. God's kavod fills the Mishkan, so much so that Moshe cannot enter the Oel Moed. 
because the cloud has settled upon it and God's kavod has filled the entire Mishkan. So Moses can't go in. Okay. And then sometimes the cloud goes up. Sometimes the cloud comes down. Okay. And in the, during the daytime, it's a cloud and at night, it's a fire. So we have again the fire and the cloud. And does that mean that God moves into the Mishkan and sometimes moves out of the Mishkan? Later on in Numbers, the Midbar will say, you know, when the when the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire go up, that means they're going to start moving. That means that suggests maybe that God is <coughs> moving out of the Mishkan, and you know, God is the one who's leading the uh, the uh, journey through the desert. And then when the cloud and the fire settle back in the Mishkan, that means we're going to camp here. Okay. So God's kavod, whatever that is, dwells in the Mishkan. Okay. Um, a few chapters later in Vayikra Leviticus, we read this just a few days ago, uh, sorry, a few weeks ago, there is an inauguration ceremony where the Mishkan service is inaugurated and the Kohanim, the priests are um, installed into their uh, function as priests and Aaron does the first priestly sacrifice in the Mishkan, okay? And there's a whole ceremony with lots of prescribed sacrifices. And then Aaron, this is Vayikra Leviticus chapter 9, lifts up his hands and blesses the people after he does the sacrifices. And Moses and Aaron go into the tent of meeting and they bless the people. Vayera chevod Hashem el kol ha'am. And God's kavod appeared to all the people. Vatetze esh milifne Hashem. A fire came out from before God. So we're used to God as appearing as fire because we've seen that in a number of passages. And it consumes all the stuff on the altar. And the people see this and they shout and fall on their face. Okay, because they've seen something miraculous. Meaning rather than in this instance, rather than humans lighting a fire under the sacrifices, it seems to suggest that fire just emerges from somewhere in the Mishkan miraculously and consumes the sacrifices. So because God's kavod dwells in the Mishkan, the Kohanim need to be very careful around there. If they do the wrong thing, bad things might happen, as we know from the story of Nadav and Avihu, Aaron's two sons who do something ritually incorrect and they are consumed by fire. So in the beginning of Parshat Achremot, two weeks ago, Leviticus Vayikra chapter 16, uh, God commands Moses to tell Aaron, hey, 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 you know, you can't come into the, the Mishkan any old time. Sorry, you can't come in the Mishkan. There's an inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies, separated by the main part of the sanctuary with a curtain called the Parochet. And God says to Moses, tell Aaron, you know, you can't come inside the parocha to the Holy of Holies any old time you will. He is not to come at will into the shrine behind the curtain in front of the cover that is upon the ark. So the ark is like a chest. It's covered by a cover, uh, covers made of gold. And there are two kruvim, some sort of mythical creatures that emerge from it. Um, and, you know, if Aaron just happens to walk in to that, holy of holies any old time not at the right time he might die 
says God. Therefore, by the way, he's only allowed to come in once a year on Yom Kippur, and he has to come in making a cloud of incense. Okay? Um, why might he die? For I appear in the cloud over the cover. So God seems to be suggesting here, this passage, that my presence, whatever it is of God that is in the Mishkan, <coughs> actually dwells not in the entire Mishkan, but in the inner sanctum called the Holy of Holies, um, on the cover, somehow on top of the Kruvim. In some of the poetic passages in the Bible, God is called Yoshev HaKruvim, the one who sits on the Kruvim. So Bible scholars put this together and understand it as the Kruvim are somehow God's throne or footstool. God's presence is in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, and this presence is generally called in these priestly texts, the Kavod. Let's pause for a moment and talk about the word Kavod. So in general, in ancient Hebrew, in ancient Israel, um, various bodily organ words are used to connote certain abstract functions. Bodily organ words are used to connote or embody certain abstract functions. So the lave, the heart, is seen as the, th- the seat of feelings and thoughts. They didn't know much about the brain in biblical times. Okay. Your heart is what's thinking and feeling. I guess they said that because they knew your heart was beating all the time. So they assumed that's where your thinking and feeling of some uh, functions are going on. The kidneys are the seat of what? What happens in the kidneys? Anyone? Your conscience. Your conscience lives in your kidneys. God is the one who checks your kidneys, which means God searches into your innermost conscience. Nefesh means throat or neck. So secondarily, it gets to mean life, because, you know, when your throat is cut, you have no more life. Nishama is your breath. So that also comes to mean life or spirit or later on soul, something that leaves the body, comes into the body and leaves the body. Because when you stop breathing, you appear to no longer have an animate spirit and Kaved means the liver, okay? And uh, uh, that's the part of the person that we treat with respect, their kavod. So it seems to mean some essential part of the person that's not their thoughts and feelings and not their spirit. So it's hard to understand this. Um, So it... It might mean some version of personality or self. A lot of Bible scholars say self is as good a translation as any. And our JPS translation says presence. Okay. So what these texts in the priestly layer of the Torah seem to suggest is God's presence was somewhere else up there. It came down to Mount Sinai and did a revelation. Then the Israelites built a place for God's presence, the Mishkan. God's presence goes and dwells there in the Kodesh HaKodeshim, okay? <coughs> and so that's not a big surprise in terms of, again, as I said, right, where the priests think um, God's presence dwells. God's presence dwells 
in the place that we are responsible for. All right. So these these texts seem to suggest God is not invisible, filling the whole world, could be anywhere. Okay. Now, of course, Isaiah, the prophet later on, has a vision saying, Milochol Kadosh 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 Milochol Haaretz Kivodo. No, 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 says Isaiah. The whole world is full of God's kavod. Okay, but that's that does not appear to be the ideology of these priestly texts, right? It's it's the Mishkan has God's kavod, and in particular in the Kodesh HaKodeshim. By the way, footnote, you can look at the Ezekiel text later on on your own. The Ezekiel, who was a prophet who prophesied in Babylonia at the time of the destruction of the temple, 586 BCE, this theology, he's a Kohen, and this Kohanic ideology creates a problem because the temple gets destroyed. So if God lives there, how could the temple get destroyed? How could God allow the temple to be destroyed? The temple is where God, God's kavod, lives. So the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel in chapter 10 and 11, has a vision. Uh, sorry, he's in Babylonia. So all of this is a vision. It's not like Moses seeing. It's Ezekiel seeing, but in a vision, because he's in another country. And what he sees is God's kavod, see my cursor here, God's presence. It moves out of the temple. It goes out. It's it's riding on a platform that is carried by the Kruvim, and it goes out to the east of the city and hangs out on the mountain east of the city, which I believe we would call Har Hazetim, the Mount of Olives. Okay, and then the temple can be destroyed because Elvis has left the building. <laughs> God's kavod has departed from the sanctuary, so then the temple is destroyed. And then Yechezkel, Ezekiel has a vision, uh, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, at the end of the book, is Ezekiel's vision of what's going to happen in the end times, in the future time, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and then God's kavod is going to come back from the east, and God's kavod comes back into the temple, and, and in this vision of the future temple, God says to Ezekiel, this place of my throne and where my feet are, the soles of my feet, which again gives us the uh, understanding that the image is that where God dwells in the temple is like God's throne room. God sits on a seat and God's feet are on something. I will eshkon sham betoch b'nei Israel la'olab. When I come back to the future temple, I will dwell in it forever. Meaning I had to leave the temple because as a punishment, I allowed the Babylonians to conquer the city and burn the temple. The reason is because the people were doing idol worship. But when the temple's rebuilt at some point in the future, uh, the, the kavod, Ezekiel has a vision of the kavod coming back to it, and God says, I'm going to live there forever. Okay, so this ideology or theology, this ideology of God in a strand of priestly thinking is that God actually has a physical presence. It doesn't say exactly what it looks like. It involves fire and cloud, so we sort of assume it's fiery, but it's shrouded by cloud, and we build a place for it on earth, the Mishkan, later the Beit HaMikdash, first the portable tabernacle, then later the temple in Jerusalem. God's presence, or kavod, or God's 
self, the, the physical presence of God inhabits that temple. When it, when God wants the temple to be destroyed, God leaves the temple. And then when the temple's rebuilt in the future, God's kavod comes back and re-inhabits the temple. So we have here an ideology articulated in, let's say, a, a priestly strand of our sacred texts that God does have a physical presence and it is localized. Whereas um, last week we talked about the word about the, the word magic word was God's corporeality. I imagine, you know, Groucho Marx, you bet your life, you know, someone says corporeality and a little birdie comes down and Groucho says you won $25. Surely dating myself, right? So the word of today would be um, uh, localization. God is here and not there. Okay. Now let's pause for a moment. So on the one hand, we have Isaiah, who may be actually arguing with this ideology, when in Isaiah's vision, Isaiah says, Molochol Haaretz Kivodo. God's presence fills the whole, God's Kavod fills the whole world, which seems to suggest not the temple, right? Which we have in our Kedusha. So let me ask for you, let me ask you, Michael O, do you have a question or a comment? I only want questions for the moment. Yeah, I, I, I just feel, find it uh, interesting that in a, in a way, Ezekiel is, is a, is a sort of a premonition that, that God's presence will have to be el- uh, elsewhere or everywhere because, well, is that, it, because right. he, he's almost like a, is a premonition that the temple will not be there, you know? Right. It's a vision. It's a prophecy. Right. Again, Ezekiel is, sorry. You're talking about Isaiah saying God's kavod fills the whole world or Ezekiel's vision of the kavod leaving the temple? Ezekiel. Ezekiel Ezekiel is a prophet who lives in Babylonia at the time of the destruction of the temple. He has a vision because he's a prophet, right? Prophets have vision. He has a vision of what's going to happen, which that, by the way, that vision is sort of necessary in terms of Kohanic or priestly ideology to explain if God's kavod, God's presence, dwells in the temple in Jerusalem, how will it be possible for God's temple to be destroyed? How could allow God allow that? Or what will happen to God's kavod when the temple is destroyed? Will the temple, could the Babylonians destroy the temple when God is actually dwelling in it? The answer is no. God's kavod leaves the building and therefore the temple is just a building. It's no longer God's abode, and that, therefore it can be destroyed. And when it's rebuilt in the future, vision of the future, the kavod comes back. So let me poise a, okay, Diane has a hand. Question, uh, not comments yet, only questions. A question, do you know whether the, the movement um, in Israel and probably elsewhere to rebuild the temple, the third temple, is by people who accept the notion of God, that, that it would be a place that God would come down to dwell in? Uh, maybe, probably, I don't know. So that takes us to what I want to go to next, which is, um, what do you think of this idea that God is localized? So of course, your initial reaction is going to be, no, absolutely not. God is everywhere. God is invisible. Da, da, da. But let me ask you this. That, and that's because you're post-Maimonidean. Okay. Um, that's because Maimonides' footprint hangs heavy on us. Um, 
But let me ask you this. Have you ever in your life had the experience of being in a place and having some feeling that somehow there was, I'll now use slightly different words, a sanctity or holiness to this place more than some other place. Have you ever had the experience in your life of feeling like I am somewhere and somehow I feel God's presence here more than I do somewhere else? Michael H. I was in Jerusalem, uh, Sukkot, 2011, and we were davening in the sukkah at this one of the many Haredi shuls in the neighborhood that I would go to. And my son and I happened to be way up front, and when the duchening happened, we were so packed in that the kohanim were standing virtually over us, uh-huh. kind of whipping us with their talitot as they yep. went back and forth. Yeah. I had a feeling go through me like electricity. I can't explain it. It was just a feeling. Uh-huh. It was just the, the oddest thing. And, and and I took that as... It's called you. I don't know what I took it as. It just okay. shocked me. Okay. So we're going to have, we can have all that for dinner. Thank you. Okay. Terry, I think you need oh. to mute. Terry, mute. Okay, Diane, right. you have a hand up. Yeah. Um, when we got to Jerusalem on sabbatical... And it was Shavuot, and we walked up to the hotel, not not to the hotel, but to, I think to the um, Robinson's Arch area of the hotel. Um, yeah, there was sort of an overwhelming feeling of being in a holy place, looking, but it was more, I would say, more historical <laughs> than like a religious experience. But it, there was a definite feeling of. You know, this this history is my history, and yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, thank you, Michael O. <laughs> Michael O. Uh, yeah, a couple of uh, Shabbats ago, uh, when we were when uh, as part of the Temple Beth Am uh, trip to the Balkans, we were in the in the synagogue in Thess- Thessalonica, and uh, and th- they had big plaques on the wall, almost from the the top to the bottom of all the communities that were destroyed. And we went to Shabbat services there and uh, uh, it just felt to me, it was a very moving experience and it it felt different to be among all those communities. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Anyone else want to add? Okay. Right. How many people have ever been at, uh, not what do you, not what do you think now when you self-censor? But how many people here, by show of hands, have ever been at the Kotel, the Wailing Wall, and felt like, oh, this feels very different in terms of God's presence than being on the bus? If you've ever felt that, raise your hand. I'll raise my hand. Okay. Um, there are certain people who are not raising their hand who I know are self-censoring. Some of them, I might know them well. Okay. Because our Maimonidean later mature self, self-censors. Okay. Uh, I just want to add that I I have felt more godly presence in nature places, like the outdoor synagogue uh places and camps and Uh stuff, but not at the Kotel. Okay, never. That never happened to you at the Kotel? No. It did happen to one of my daughters 
Okay. But no, it did I'm, not happen. To I'm me. highly skeptical, but we'll have to discuss this later <laughs> behind, behind closed doors. Okay. So it seems like probably all of us have had experiences in life of feeling something is different. And because mm-hmm. and we're modern, we water it down and say special, unique, presence, I don't know what it is, electricity, about this place where I am now than about some other place. Michael H. No, I want, Larry had wanted to say something. Oh, well, thank you, Larry. The, the way in which you, can you hear me? You have to come closer. Hmm. Or talk louder, one or the other. Oh, no, the, the, the way in which you phrase the question. Yeah means that if you sell something special, you associate it with the presence of God. Okay. Well, I, I, I'll take it back. Have you, right. Because my question was, uh, uh, have you felt the presence of God? And people said electricity and presence and special. Um, and, and I think that's because, um, I don't know, it could be for a variety of reasons. I'm going to let it hang. Okay. Well- Okay. Um, I just want to. I just want to personally disassociate myself from the concept of feeling special in a place, whether it be in nature or at the hotel, is associated with God. So my experience, especially recently at the hotel, is I feel the presence of hatred and strife, which okay. is not godly at all. Okay, got it. But I, but I, thank you. Okay, I'll, I'll let the comment hang. Um, Bernie, uh, sorry, someone was waving their hands out. Yep. We're, we're yeah, not going to. We're I, not going to get. Sorry, what we're not going to do is vote <clears throat> on if we like the Kotel or not right now. Okay. <clears throat> Bernie, I, I just quickly want to answer the question. I feel uh, a, a closeness with the history of the place, not okay. necessarily God. Every every time I go there. Okay, I don't know what closeness of history means. Just, I, I just want to well, point thing, out. The, uh, no, I no, I understand what that words, what those <clears throat> words mean. But but I would say to you, oh, history, I don't know. History is a it's a story about things that happened. What would what is that? I, I, I just want to push you to think about it. what does that mean? I feel a closeness with things that happened, things that happened the, is, is just words and memories and that it's in my brain. So why does I why would you feel a closeness with things that are actually just happening in your brain? Why would that happen in a particular place? Now, it's possible if you were a, I'll make up a phrase, psychological anthropologist or anthropological psychologist, that you would say, ah, that's because of my projection. Like, for example, when I go visit my parents' graves, I feel their presence. Rationally, I don't believe that whatever exists of them is actually more present at their grave than not at their grave. But I somehow feel it. So maybe that's just because of my projection. It's what I bring to it. Okay. So if you were a uh, secular religious anthropologist or something like that. Okay. Um, Right. Michael Ozer says, how about a feeling larger than oneself? So Michael Ozer, I would say, that in long ago times, or sorry, in circles where people are not afraid to use God, they call that God. In California, we might call that the universe or the world spirit or something like that, which I would argue are just 
later modern equivalences that people in other times or other places called God. They didn't say energy of the universe. I actually think they meant the same thing with a different vocabulary, although you might argue with me about that. Michael H. Yes, uh, perhaps what, what Bernie is getting at is that it's one thing to, to read about or hear about the temple or any other any other structure and another to actually see the physical evidence that it was there. I could look at a picture. That's physical evidence. Why would I feel different there? I just want to let the question hang. Okay. I would feel different there <laughs> if somehow, okay, um, there was something there that gave me a feeling. I could look at a picture. I could look at a video. What is it about being somewhere physically? I would just want to suggest that, oh, on, on some in some way in which it's hard for us to articulate, there's something about actual physical presence that gives us some, I'll, I'll just loosely say the word feeling. Debbie, I think you've been wanting to say something. Yeah. So I've I've noticed a couple of things. Number one, in some synagogues, when um, the Torah is carried around, there are some people who seem to have an overwhelming um, spiritual relationship when they kiss the Torah that goes around. Uh huh. And in and in some synagogues, I've also witnessed where during Yom Kippur, the um, the congregation comes to the ark during a certain time in the service and that the, that the, also the, the lineup at the ark the right? lineup the at the line, ark right the to ark. say to to have a special moment or special prayers at the heart at the ark yes maimonides would be horrified right and, as, and, if, and, as, and, if, and, as if god can't hear my prayers when i'm just you know sitting in the pew or standing in my pew go ahead and my comment is is that i think that both of those things are very close to idol worship. Okay, so what you are saying... I'm Maimonidean in that way. Okay, so what you are saying is, if I may translate it, is this idea of God's kavod residing somewhere, which means not somewhere else, or more in somewhere as opposed to other places, sounds to you like Something idol worshipy. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm I'm softening what you are saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Um, so I think we it's nine. We're fifteen minutes beyond eight forty-five. We're gonna we're gonna ring off. But I'm just gonna summarize and say so. We have in a strand of the Bible the idea. Um, it particularly in texts. Um that pertain to the Kohanim and their realm, which is the temple, not surprisingly, that God's presence, referred to as kavod, dwells in the temple more so than other places. It can come into the temple. It can leave the temple, right? God has a will about that, which suggests the idea that God has a presence which could be seen or felt or is somehow more evident, more real. Again, I, I want to say, is it more real? Or if you're just a if you're just a religious anthropologist, psychological anthropologist, would you say it's more felt there than other places? Right? It's not actually more there, which Debbie is saying, oh, that sounds like idol worship to me, but is actually 
felt by people more there, right? Is God's presence more at the Kotel or in the nature or whatever? Or is it just you bring certain expectations to it, right? And so you have a feeling of that more there than you're able to somewhere else. It's all emanating from you. I, I just want to say these texts in the Torah seem not to suggest that. They seem to suggest, no, 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 it doesn't really emanate just from you. It's actually because there's something there, okay? Which I'd like to point out has something to do with fire that then needs to be shrouded by a cloud. Okay, we're running very, very over. We're going to stop for today. Um, we may think about this a little bit next week, but I think we're going to move on to another strand of biblical thinking about God's presence. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.